preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So I am reading a book on Schleiermacher. So I'm taking a class this fall on Schleiermacher and Tillich. Okay. Um, obviously it hasn't started yet, but it's uh, I'm excited for that class. At least I I'm was particularly excited for Tillich. I don't really know anything. I didn't really know anything about Schleiermacher, except that Karl Barth hated him, <laughs> and that was good enough for Wesley. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but. I, I, so I'm working on this project, you know, that perhaps in a, in a parallel universe might become a book one day, mm-hmm. uh, on holiness. And I want to sort of talk through the question of holiness and human need, you know, and okay. I, I'm kind of, there's some different things that I'm reading or have, have continued to read since I was in seminary that uh are making me kind of you know just just making my brain move uh with those with 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 that right like there's this really interesting moment in peter taylor forsyth so we've talked about forsyth on the in on the pod before forsyth has this uh really kind of interesting way of talking about atonement in one of his books where he talks about um whole i mean forsyth for forsyth holiness is one of the key elements to his thought like he's he's not a wesleyan but there's some really interesting wesleyan connections with forsyth where he really sees holiness as a moral term and and a term involving love and sanctification and 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 all of these things he's but but holiness really does some interesting work in his in his thinking and he has this interesting moment when he talks about the atonement where he he sort of rejects penal substitution and and he kind of is like you know no like it would be ridiculous to sort of see what's going on at the cross as this outpouring of divine wrath upon the human jesus you know as the substitute for the divine wrath upon us you know like and forsyth has a lot of reasons why he finds that ridiculous one of them being this sort of moral reason but he does talk about the cross as this sort of satisfaction of holiness, which is not totally uncommon. Like people, people have talked like that before, you know, different theologians have talked like that before where, where something about what the son does on the cross satisfies the holiness of the father. Hmm. Uh, And that, and Forsyth sort of identifies the son's confession. Um, you know, his kind of living confession as that satisfaction of holiness. And so the son confesses in his life, even up to death, uh, of God's holiness. He confesses God's holiness in, say, the parables, or he confesses God's holiness in the Sermon on the Mount, or he confesses God's holiness in his healing and loving ministries, you know, and and then, and then, sort of, finally confesses God's holiness uh, in the cross, you know, as being, as as confessing God's holiness even unto death, right, up against the forces of evil, because Forsyth will identify the the factors that lead to Jesus's crucifixion as this this evil thing. I'm sorry, I'm ta- I haven't talked about Schleiermacher yet, but I'm getting there. 
Um, following. Okay. Uh, and so that's that's a nuanced thing. He's not Forsyth isn't the only one who talks like that, but I, I find that interesting. But what what I find really interesting about Forsyth is after he talks about that in this section in one of his books, he then goes on to say, however, God, if this is where the story of atonement ended, the holiness of God would would fail to be satisfied because. Uh, the son of God now has made a demand of holiness upon the father. Hmm. Um, and, and Forsyth then identifies the resurrection as, as God, as God, the father um, meeting the demand of holiness that God, the son has placed upon him. Interesting. I, isn't that isn't that an interesting move? Like like I find that to be really really interesting. Like totally interesting, and and so I found that interesting. And what what I find that makes all of this really interesting that kind of combines it together is Forsyth couches all of this in in this dynamic. What I identify Forsyth might not put it in these exact terms what I identify as a dynamic of need and satisfaction in God Mm -hmm. that Forsyth routinely says um, it's not that God is a person who is holy. God simply is holiness and holiness needs one thing, which is the satisfaction of holiness. And so hmm. there is need in God, and that need is for God's holiness to be satisfied, and the way in which God's holiness is satisfied is it's satisfied in judgment, confession, deliverance, and sanctification. And so, Forsyth, and Forsyth does say this explicitly, and so how is holiness satisfied? Holiness is satisfied when the creation around God becomes holy. And so holiness needs holiness is sort of how it, how it's presented. The need that holiness has is for there is for holiness to abound everywhere, which is part of the reason why Forsyth sees sanctification as salvation and, and why he he's something of a universalist in this way, that, that there's a, a sense in which what is salvation? Well, salvation is the, perpetuation of holiness in all of creation um uh i find that i find this sort of dynamic of need really interesting in Forsyth because i've been sort of thinking through need in creation for a little while like arthur mcgill who's a theologian i really like talks about the dynamic of need and and expenditure and you know um, um, death and and life and all of that in his work. I've been reading McGill since seminary, um, and and so I've been sort of thinking. I I've been thinking through like create creaturely need and the way in which and the way in which creation could be understood as just this like endless well of need, right? Like this endless cry of of need in which if if needs are not being satisfied then creation sort of dies it sort of stops you know and and then there's this sort of ultimate maybe ontological need that we have for god 
Um, but but I've but since reading Forsyth, I've been just thinking through, well, what would that mean from a holiness perspective? Because Forsyth seems to be implying that that need characterizes holiness. And in fact, um, and I think this is true of Wesley, John Wesley, like um, perhaps creation and creatures become more holy the more intense the need is embraced. Hmm. And so there's a sense. So, and I, and I see that in the way in which Forsyth seems to be talking about the Trinity too. Like there's this sense in which um, um, whole, perhaps we might say we become more holy, the more we need holiness the more voraciously the need for holiness, you know, sort of becomes. There's a sense in which we might say, um, if if one does not sort of feel that pool of holiness, that that could be a sign that we're working with somebody who is not very holy, right? Like like there there's a and and you know holiness, the sort of the analog in the creaturely analog of holiness is like morality right for foresight um and so uh, uh, an I- only an immoral person doesn't feel the weight and pool of morality right hmm. yeah um and it's and so there's a sense in which we become holier maybe the more we we live into and embrace and and find need intensified right just like maybe in the godhead um, that that perhaps we can say, and I my, I might say this as I read Forsyth's work, that um, the Godhead, the Trinity, is this perichoretic da- dance of need, judgment, and satisfaction. You know, like like of like God is all under the banner of of a holy love. Forsyth doesn't abandon love by any stretch of the imagination. For him, love is sort of the shorthand for all of that, right? But but like need, judgment, and satisfaction all kind of paracritically dance and interact together in the Godhead. And and there's a sense in which creation then is this sort of reflection of that of that paracritic dance. And we then discover that maybe that's true. Like maybe creation, maybe need, judgment, and satisfaction really is what makes up creation. You know, that all three of these things sort of come together, maybe in this finite way, but it might be really true. That's sort of what I'm working with. So that is, we should talk about that here at some point. But I say all of that because I've been talking to my advisor about this. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this sort of, and I'm like, Paul is sort of what I'm thinking. And Paul's like, Paul Jones is like, wow, that's really interesting. You know, it really is, Ethan. I, I, I think you should keep thinking about that do you want to make this your dissertation? And I'm like, no, I still really want to do the powers and principalities thing, but I really am diving into this. I really think it's important. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's really great too. And then he's quiet for a second. Last time I talked to him about this and he goes, are you in the Schleiermacher and Tillich class? And I'm like, yeah, I signed up for that. And he's like, well, you know, Schleiermacher is really, is really the guy you really need to be reading with this. And I'm like, ah, we'll see. And he's like, no, it's true. <laughs> It's true. Like Schleiermacher's, I I promise you, like you'll find that Schleiermacher uh, grounds a lot of this well for you. And so I've been reading some of that 
And um, I think, Joe, what frustrates me the most about Frederick Schleiermacher so far, having not started the class, is how right I find Frederick Schleiermacher. (laughs) (laughs) I saw your tweet where you're like, do I like Schleiermacher? Do I like him now? Yeah, everybody's like, no. And Nick's like, when Nick Nick found out, Nick's like, well, this too shall pass. Don't worry. It's because we live in <laughs> the universal right itself. And I'm like, I don't know, brother. Like, so Schleiermacher, one of the one of the primary immediate ways Schleiermacher connects to what I'm saying is Schleiermacher sort of starts with this notion of dependence. Mm-hmm. Um the and and sort of defines one of his definitions for um god and creaturely life and and the way in which sort of everything kind of works together from the god world relationship is um the feeling of absolute dependence and so for for schleiermacher there's this sense in which um a a christian the difference maybe between a christian and a non-christian might only be that a christian is aware that they are absolutely dependent on god Hmm. a non-christian might not be aware of that but but ultimately for schleiermacher that might be the primary difference you know all the other status elements aren't really different but that might be the primary difference um and then Schleiermacher sort of goes on to say um, that dependence is sort of the primary way we should understand creature life at all, because the the nature system of creation, that's sort of Schleiermacher's words, um, is characterized by a dynamic of depend of partial dependence and partial independence, and that all of creation sort of exists in the state of dependence on itself in one form or another. Uh, and then is sort of sustained by the absolute dependence that creation has on God. And Schleiermacher is a sort of anti-speculative theologian, which is the other dimension to his thought that I find that I'm really reading through right now that I find really interesting. And so for Schleiermacher, he he doesn't really have any interest in and in sort of hard definitions for God or kind of hard, um, imminent classical Trinitarian reflection. And, and instead just sort of defines God as the whence of our absolute dependence, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so dependence sort of characterizes Schleiermacher's thought, which, which I think is sort of the immediate connection to what I'm talking about. But then there's the secondary connection that I'm discovering, Joe, where I'm reading this book that was actually written by one of Paul's um, former UVA advisees, um uh the book is on uh, it's called essential trinitarianism it's it's about schleiermacher as a trinitarian theologian and sort of and and bart and others sort of characterize schleiermacher as this non-trinitarian theologian like in in his major work like the trinity is relegated to like 10 pages in the back and and they sort of interpret that as see schleiermacher doesn't give a shit about the trinity it's all it's all bullshit and uh um, Shelley Poe, who's the author of this book, Shelley Poe's like, no, that's not true. Like, yes, it's 10 pages in the back, but Schleiermacher understood, Schleiermacher says pretty clearly that the Trinity is the keystone to his, to his entire, his entire work. 
the what what is true, however, is that Schleiermacher rejects Athanasian imminent Trinitarian theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> I might I might agree with him. That's why I'm getting scared. That's why I'm like maybe I should be killed. Like like I I <laughs> I'm I might agree with him. It's the argumentation is really subtle, Joe. Like. So like Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher thinks that the Athanasian way of talking about the Trinity. So let me try it another way. So imminent Trinitarian reflection for our listeners is, is sort of trying to imagine what the Trinity would be like, what God as Trinity would be like without creation. Mm-hmm. And so God in God's self. Schleiermacher says There's in, there is no way we can actually do that. Like, Schleiermacher rejects that out of hand. Reflecting on the imminent trinity is impossible. There's no way we can do that. Also, it's stupid. Schleiermacher's like, it's also a stupid (laughs) practice. Like, what? Let us imagine how God would be like if God were not the God God is right now. Like, like, like what, what, what kind of, what do we do as creatures who, who, you know, how do we imagine how God would be like if there were no creatures? Like, like it's, for Schleiermacher, he finds that silly. He finds it impious, and he finds it silly. Um, but then he says, also, the sort of Athanasian, you know, orthodox, imminent Trinitarian reflection, where we, where we imagine, you know, the Father is the monarchy of the Trinity, and and is the 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 gener- the, the begetter of the Son, and from the father the spirit processes forth and you know this kind of speculative tradition of imagining what the inner life of the trinity is like schleiermacher says it's bad because this is this is the subtle argument that i find interesting joe he says it's bad because it um it produces the heresy of subordinationism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and Schleiermacher anticipates when he's writing this, he anticipates his, his critics and there's a ton of critics on this. And, and he's like, now the, my critics might say, Frederick, you, you're a dummy. Like, you know, there are, there are 1500 years of Christian reflection showing you how it does not do that. How it, how it demonstrates that it is not subordinationism that, that, that the the father the son and the spirit are all co-equal you know and that that it doesn't matter that the father is the monarchy of the trinity it's it's just you know gregory of nazianzus says incessantly that that's that's not a reflection of of sort of chronological order it's all these other things and and schleiermacher says yeah that's fine that's all fine but i'm a pastor and i know that Athanasian imminent Trinitarian reflection produces a fruit of subordinationism in the church. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. This that when you said that, I was like, this seems patently obvious. Uh, but I also understand the within the ecosystem that he's working with why you have to fight for it. Yeah, right. And and it's a and it's it's a subtle argument in my opinion. Because Schleiermacher sidesteps logic. It's not that he's illogical. He just sidesteps the imminent Trinitarian Orthodox logic and says, 
isn't the point, and he says this, is not the point of theology to produce the fruits of the Spirit in the Christian community. Yeah. And and everybody's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, and get ready for this. Well, it seems that the point is to be good and not to be right. And then I was mm. like, I just felt like, I just felt like a knife goes through my heart. You know, I'm like, <laughs> fuck it, Schleiermacher, fuck you. <laughs> you know? And and so Schleiermacher embraces, according to this book I'm reading, Schleiermacher then embraces an economic Trinitarian model in which he actually starts with the spirit. Mm. And and he says, well, we really need to begin with the spirit in an economic Trinitarian model, you know, because in the economic trinity is all about the trinity as it is revealed in the work of salvation right you know and and is like which means we have to start with the spirit because we know that the spirit reveals the son who reveals the father and so we start with the spirit we move to the christ and then we move to the father and and for schleiermacher all that the father is in the economic trinity is just the is just the revelation of god as as creator within creation right so like it's a the reason how schleiermacher puts all of this is he 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 sort of rejects athanasian you know three persons one substance or one essence whatever ways of talking about the trinity and embraces a modified form of sabalianism like he embraces a modified form of of (laughs) modalism (laughs) and uh that that is probably not fully modalistic. Like like I think he, according to Doctor, according to Shelley Poe, like he, he he is still with. He's not a heretic. Like he's within the bounds of, of how he of how he words it and how he puts it. Um, but but sort of escapes this whole generational thing. Like like the father generates the son and the spirit. You know he he escapes all of that, and instead you know kind of retools the trinity in some of these other ways um and uh i find so i find that really interesting but i say uh, the the argue the argument from piety and fruit is uh you know what gets me because like for schleier that 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 to me is such a is such a john wesley thing to say (laughs) Ooh, yeah yeah you know and and like and Schleiermacher was this sort of pietist, like that was kind of his thing. Like he he wasn't a Wesleyan, but but it's such a John Wesley thing. It 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 it, it jives so well with me as a Methodist, you know, where I'm like, yeah, like because like you said, there's something sort of obviously correct about that. Yes, from a systematic theology perspective, there is a way to do Athanasian, you know three persons imminent you know trinitarian theology that does not from this sort of systematic theology perspective lead us to subordinationism but schleiermacher is right none of that actually matters because the point is not to create a clever system the point is to be filled with the fruits of the spirit and to be holy and so if theology is not a tool for the holiness of the Christian community, then uh, what is it? 
it's just it's that's nothing you know it, it's it's meaningless and irrelevant it's it's made up and uh i um agree <laughs> <laughs> and and i did not expect to agree when i'm reading this i'm like oh crap you know like of course of course that's true of course that's correct and uh and so now i now i'm really mad <laughs> at uh at Kendall Solon and Rick Algendi. That's true. I don't think it's Rick's fault, you know. He's <laughs> he's just a Bartian. What does he know? Rick, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, I love you. Paul Jones is a Bartian too. I don't mean anything by that. But but like I I I find that I find that really uh uh really interesting. And so that's kind of that long rant uh leads me here. Yeah, it, it it didn't feel. One day we'll have to define what a rant is because that doesn't feel ranty to me. That just feels uh, you're explaining something. Um, it, it makes me think back to this is something that I was going to talk about in our in the main episode for this week. Um, like I at some point this week, it, as I was going through things on Twitter and like social media, I was like, you know what I need to do is I just need to like write down my opinions on like all of these different topics like and just like prove to myself that I have the right opinion on all the topics <laughs> but just like have it in a central place so that like if anybody ever questions me I can point to it and be like no this is what I believe this is where this is coming from um and, and then it just like as I was thinking that struck me how absurd that is <laughs> and how um how it is the opposite of what a good life actually looks like like just wanting to be right and have the right opinion set down in stone somewhere is not it's in the language of what we've talking about is not sanctification is not holiness like in no way does is this what jesus calls us to be is the people with the with the right answers right uh, on on every top, given topic but we function as if that is what it, mm -hmm. what it should be especially i think people who who have gone to seminary uh, because we have been trained in knowing what the right answer is. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I so I have not read a page of Schleiermacher. I just know, like in uh, in conversation with other theologians, how other people react to him. Uh, so this is all very interesting to me. But but I do find that like the uh the theological reflections that are the most life-giving to me are the ones that are that are born out of a place of um pastoral practice where like you just you as somebody on the ground seeing how people in your community are reacting are like well listen what we can say all of these other good and important things and that is helpful i guess but like Unless this systematic thought, unless your unless your creations and all these these ways of understanding God uh, are are going to be able to be translated back to the layperson and bring about the fruits of the spirit in the layperson, like it's straw, my dude. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. I so. So, and I think the reason that I have a bad taste in my mouth about Schleiermacher is the the base the the need basis. Like as you're talking about all this, you really have to sell me on um on the idea that there is need in God or that we have a need for God. Like using the language of we need this, 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I the reason that I don't like it um, is that it is, uh, and I can't draw a straight line. I just have a very deep sense within my spirit that that need based language is used abusively by pastors. Um, hmm, sure. And and maybe not just by pastors, maybe like evangelists in general. Um, and maybe that's just like growing up in evangelical circles in the nineties of um, like the, and, and maybe this was a spiritual truth that was presented to me by people who I have found to just not really understand what that spiritual truth meant and have not seen the fruit in their lives. But like the idea that I, need God or that God needs literally anything from me makes me feel icky. (laughs) Sure. Sure. And I think like that, that icky feeling is coming from somewhere. Like it's um, there. I know that there must be some root behind it, but um, so, so you kind of have to in this, like, I feel like that is, trauma informed in some way shape or form and i would have to go digging and thinking about it but like um i do think though that the um the that like the the sense that you are in need of holiness or like the sense that we are dependent Oh God, I hate that again. That was a big long. I I remember having the theological conversations that I had in Scotland, and then in my first year in seminary, I had a lot of conversations with people about um, our like dependency as creatures and how I hated it, and I mm-hmm. still hate it. I like that to me. Why would you create something that is dependent upon you? That is classic abusive behavior, right? <laughs> like, why would sure. you create a situation in which someone cannot walk away from you? unless you were intending to exploit them in some way, shape or form. Um, like sure. that's, that's what it all rings to me. And I don't mean to be like, so that's why we shouldn't accept this, but I like, that's no, no, I, the thing I, I need to work through. Yeah. Well, so I think that, I think that you're saying really important and good things. I don't know enough about Schleiermacher to qualify it totally, but I will say this, like the sort of, God as this kind of dynamic of need and satisfaction that I'm kind of teasing out a little bit in Forsyth and in my own kind of confessional work, that's not in Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher is a fairly, um, I'm going to say classically Protestant in, in, in that way. Like Schleiermacher does not see a reciprocal dependence between God and creatures. Oh, right, right, right. Um, okay. And so, so I definitely want to make that clear. Um, I think that, so what you're feeling, I think is, is I get, I definitely get, but I think that some of this need stuff uh, is just sort of reflecting on, on the experience of life, you know, as, as, as beings, right? And then, and then maybe understanding that through some other Christiany lenses, but like, so like Arthur McGill, who I've, who, who I really, really like is just a theologian. I really liked, you know, he, he just, for him, the fact of need in creation is just really self-evident. If I don't eat, I die. I need it. You know, if I don't, if, if I don't have social interaction in any meaningful sense, I'm basically dead. I need it, you know, 
if if I don't have air, I die. I need it. Like these are things like like need for McGill characterizes creaturely life. There is no such thing as a totally autonomous creature. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that perhaps um, the belief of total autonomy uh, is um, uh, a lie and is a perpetuated lie. Uh, maybe even by the devil, you know, you don't, you, I don't know. Yeah. Um, now I understand that that's not a, that I think you're right. Like, I think that this can be abused just like anything uh, mm-hmm. to, to, you know, push against say like body autonomy or whatever. But the other piece that I think the other sort of subtle thing that McGill does that affects me is that McGill, McGill would then go on to say that this sort of reality of need he thinks is a feature, not a bug where, where need is, is the mechanism in creation that God places there in order for creation to be open to God and to each other. Um, that Mm -hmm. without that mechanism, um, there is a sense in which the reality of, love and communal and community relation relationship holiness you know all of that would would just it wouldn't exist uh in in those ways now that's something of a cyclical argument but i i think um but but like i also find that to be um not speculative which, which even if it is a cyclical argument where so like if if maybe we can put it another way if we just say no, the reality of need is a bug, then the next question has to be: Imagine life without need. So what? Imagine life in which not only do we not have physical needs, but we also don't have emotional needs, spiritual needs, mental needs. Imagine life untouched by needs. Well, what what would that even look like? You essentially have to make it up. Right. Um, I think I think the strength of of starting with need is that uh, it starts with it starts with reality, you know, even if it isn't a. Uh, um, you know, even if it's not uh, even if it can be abused, which which I agree with you, I think it can. Uh, I think I think there's strength to that. The other piece to that, the other the other sort of voice in my project that I'm sort of working through is is womanism. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm really sort of attracted to a couple of things. There's, there's all this, there's a, uh, one of my favorite books I read in seminary is, is actually a feminist uh, piece of feminist biblical criticism uh, called uh, mother mourner midwife. I don't know it. It's a great book. It, it's, it's easy to read. I actually think, I actually think church, certain church groups could probably could probably do it too it's a short book but mother mourner midwife is this text in which the uh, the author sort of explores uh feminine imagery of god in the old testament and and those are sort of the three sort of images that the old that the hebrew bible invokes according to this author according to this scholar it's uh, uh juliana classens that's that the one right? okay. that's the one um really great book really changed sort of the way I thought about a lot of things. Um, and, and mother mourner midwife, uh, these three sort of, uh, things, uh, help classes sort of identify, um, 
the theme of deliverance over the theme of liberation. Hmm. So she sort of critiques deliver she critiques liberation from a feminist um, sort of perspective and says if we if we sort of adopt she argues anyway if we sort of adopt wholesale the themes of liberation from the Hebrew scriptures we actually have an image of God as a liberating warrior mm-hmm. uh, it's it's the the liberationy passages. Um, and and images are are deeply patriarchal and sort of deeply all of these things, but by adopting an image of say God as a midwife, you know the theme of deliverance is sort of risen up. You know God delivers the people of Israel from oppression, or God delivers the people or or whatever, and and I find that jiving really really well with lots of different strands of womanist thinking. Um. In particular, Dolores Williams' book, um, I think it's called Sisters in the Wilderness, um, where she heard one of her definitions of God is the one who makes a way out of no way. You know, what is God? God is the one who makes a way out of no way. You know, and, and there's a deliverance factor there. You know, God is the delivering one, the the and is also the one who who's sort of present in times of need right mm-hmm. and rather than rather than sort of and I'm, I'm not saying i'm not trying to say therefore liberation theology is bad that's not what i'm saying at all but it's just a different set of emphases when um for different situations and communities and perspectives that i i want to sort of bring into my project as well because i think that I am suspicious. Maybe I'll put it this way, Joe. I'm suspicious, maybe not in a bad way, of of many of our pushback against need. Um, yeah. I hear what you're saying, and I do not disagree with what you're saying, because you're right. Like, um, the <laughs> our hearts are restless until they find rest in God has been used to say, therefore, we need to eradicate the Muslims. Like, you know, like, like has stuff like that as is, is forms of soft power and forms of these things that, that manipulate us into thinking that we can have no, no life outside of a, a structured evangelical life. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like I agree with that, but, um, it's also true that these sort of calls for not having to face the already present reality of our need also uh, causes deep ecological disaster mm-hmm. and and shuts us off from vulnerability and relationship. These are things that like I'm not saying are are unqualified goods. It's not what I'm saying, but but these are also sort of things that keep human beings human like it keeps create without an in without an interworking without acknowledging that need is sort of the interworking web of created life um how then do we do it you know do we just sort of ignore the fact that um yes it's true the overconsumption of beef you know, does horrible things to the environment. Absolutely. To fix that, 
do I simply ignore the fact that sometimes beef is the only thing people have to eat? You know what I mean? Like, well, no. Right. You know, we don't we don't adopt an anti-need kind of a thing. We don't attempt to become, you know, kind of stone statues. And I think that's sort of what I find attractive about thinking through need in holiness, right? You know, like like holiness then is is not about becoming unneedy. It might be it might be about embracing that we might be essentially needy. And and then sort of in that embracing of it are then able to engage in this kind of dynamic of need and satisfaction. Um Yeah, like as I, as I was thinking about it, as you were talking, it, it struck me that that was a very, um, that my, my pushback against need is a very, uh, middle-class white person thing. <laughs> like that, because I am often very separated from many of my needs, um, or, or see the fact that I have needs as a moral failing, um, but, but, uh, you, uh, I I find like it it immediately after that brought me to thinking about like braiding sweetgrass where there is such a conversation about um the like humanity's place in this ecosystem where we do have needs that we are meeting but like that you must meet your needs in this um in this way that is beneficial to both you and the ecosystem around you um or like I I saw a tweet this week that talked about how we are um a capstone species are humans and that when we're when we are functioning in our role correctly we are able to enhance the flourishing of other things in the ecosystem by our tending of the ecosystem but when we are not aware of our relationship to the ecosystem and our both our need for it and the ecosystem's dependent on us dependence on us and reaction to us then we end up with wildfires that are consuming much of our continent so, um, yeah, yeah, like, I, I, I think that, um, it, like, it strikes me a lot is, again, like, capitalist and white supremacists to be like, the ideal is to get to a place where, um, your needs are so fully met that sure. you no longer understand that you have them, um, yeah, yeah, and that you're at the like fulfilling desires at all times stage, um, and to be honest, like most of my physical needs are really fully met most of the time, and so I like to pretend that I don't have them. Um, but that is to ignore like a, a basic facet of our existence, which is that we need things. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with anything you're saying and I don't fully dislike everything you're saying. I'm just now like, sure. now that we have said it this way, I'm trying to like process it um, for myself. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I do think, and this again is like a facet of like the kind of country club church that model that was built in the fifties that we have kind of lived with and, and now watch decline and a facet of like growing up in a, in a middle, really middle-class church um, is that like the the only needs that we interact with are the needs right. of the needy who we are helping like 
and and like put that in the context of again like growing up in the 90s in the south in the united states in more conservative areas like they are needy because they made a mistake right people are only poor because they made poor decisions um and so therefore if you are experiencing your neediness then you are bad you are immoral because like the moral thing is to not experience neediness um and to have all of your needs met because God would clearly have blessed you and met all of your needs if you were a good and righteous person. Like, I think, I think there's also like a prosperity gospel piece to untangle with just like, it, it is a real, the, the idea of just like, of living within the fact that we are human beings who do have needs, who are dependent on, other things around us and starting from there really undoes a lot of um, some of the unhealthy capitalistic mm-hmm. theology that we all grew up with. Um, and maybe that's why I am uncomfortable with it. Well, I mean, I, I've been there too. Like, and I'm, not I'm definitely there. I, I think that one of the, one of the things that the capitalist system does to us is it casts, it, it is, it, it actually does attempt to hide need and cast everything in terms of once. Right. And so there's this, it's Mm -hmm. how they can get away with making a profit on healthcare because healthcare, healthcare is somehow not, is somehow not a necessity. You know, it's, it's one of those things that are desirable and maybe you were willing to pay money for it, you know, because you want it right. When, when really it's, it's, you know, it's it's direct need you know um just like so many other things i uh yeah i mean i'm still i'm still working with that too like the the idea what what would it even look like to say that um the hide it's not even that it's the hiding of need what would it what would it look like to say that embracing need in all aspects is the holy life of is, is the holy life that christians should be striving for does that mean what that that we you know what would that even look like? I think is complicated. I think that's a complicated question because I don't really have a great answer for that. Uh, I think that this dynamic of you know need into satisfaction and then and then in foresight theology judgment is sort of thrown in there. Uh, but I would I would actually want to talk about deliverance before judgment. Yeah, you kept on saying that judgment word, and I was like, I don't like. Yeah, I, I only bring up judgment because because of Forsyth. Like Forsyth brings up judgment as a as an important dynamic of like justice, like an important dynamic in God of of you know uh, uh, judging mm. one as holy or not holy. Um, and I think that deliverance works better in a con- in the construction I'm working with. But like, you know, I I think from a creation perspective, like needs cannot be are not eternally met you know one one is constantly um in need you know i don't just uh (laughs) this is gonna sound so dumb my favorite moment in all of steve carell's like the comedian and actor steve carell from the office Mm -hmm. like my favorite moment in all of his work is an Evan Almighty of all places, <laughs> okay. where Steve Carell start starts growing the the Noah beard, right? Mm-hmm. And and he shaves the beard off, 
And then he looks back at the mirror and it's all back. And he has that <laughs> stupid scene. And uh, he he comes into the office, into his, his congressional office. He's a congressman. And and uh, his aide is like, Evan, you know, wh- why do you look like that? You, you, we'll get you a razor. We, you got to look better than that. And Evan's like, I can't do it because every time I shave my beard, it grows back. And then, <laughs> and then his aide's like, that's what happens when you shave. And then you <laughs> shave again. <laughs> and. And it's and it has always made me laugh so hard. I, it's the way it's delivered. It's just it's just great. And then you shave again. <laughs> but like that's sort of what I mean, right? Like that's the dynamic of need. Like I'm hungry, so I eat. But but my hunger never ends. You know, it, eventually I'm hungry again, and so I need I need again. Um, I I reflect on Adrea a ton in some of the writing I've done on this, like. Like I have a kid who I cannot satisfy. I can't satisfy her need for love. I can't do it. She's, she, she's an endless well of need for love. I could play with her for 24 hours a day and it wouldn't be enough. You know, it still wouldn't. She might get tired because she's also a creature of need and she needs sleep, but it still doesn't end. Yeah. You know, and, and like, to to deny that to deny that reality is what leads to things like being closed off as a being or in a, even a more horrific way it leads to us um taking so that we don't have to acknowledge that need you know mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it leads to we might even say i mean if i if i was going to be super duper catholic here we might even say that's that's sort of what so many of the seven deadly sins are about right you know a a, a protection of need you know pr- protecting ourselves from the realities of our need you know what is overeating but not that you know what is hmm. what is all of these things but not that and and it, it keeps us from being compassionate. It, keep, it, it causes us to imagine. It might even be the source of pride, right? Like it causes us to imagine that somehow we, we exist on our own power. And I really think that's what Schleiermacher is really getting at with this feeling of absolute dependence. Creatures do not exist on their own power. Um, not only from the sort of ontological way of talking in which God is a source of all being, but but they don't ex- but we don't exist on our own power even within creation right you know we we exist on the power of other beings um and we can either and that's just and that's just reality and so we can either have an orientation towards those other beings as being dominators and possessors and and takers or we can have an orientation towards those other beings of being receivers and givers and 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 you know mutual you know co-conspirators <laughs> right. stuff like that um because it's because the reality of need is static we might say mm-hmm. that does not go away um all beings are creatures who are characterized by need um it's just it might just matter how we meet them and how we are oriented towards them. Yeah. And that, that makes me think back again to our, to the beginning of our conversation in the last episode too. Like that, 
I think, um, I think we are so often sold this idea. Um, I think people like you and me are so often sold this idea that it is good to be independent, that it is good to meet all of your own needs without needing anything from anybody else. Um, that we then, then function, then that, that we then do not know how to function when we are in a place of need. Um, or when others are in a place of need, we don't have a, a way of thinking about that in any kind of healthy way. And so, um, then we, then when it becomes just abundantly aware that there are amazing needs around us, like, like we see in the pandemic and in Mm -hmm. our need to care for one another, like there, there is kind of this underlying fear that goes along with that of like, well, if you need me, then like, maybe I also need you and I have not done anything to deserve any, anything that you would give me. Therefore, I'm going to double down on, I take care of myself. I take care of my people. I don't need anybody. How dare you force me to care for somebody else because I don't need it. Like there is an underlying anxiety there, I think, of, of being reminded of the fact that like, no, we do actually all need each other. Um, and, and the real lie is, is the idea that we never did. Um, because needing each other means that we are we are all in this together and like stuck with one another and must care for one another. Like it gives you that moral imperative. You no longer have the the privilege, the ability to to shut yourself off. Right. Because even if you even if you shut yourself off, it doesn't it doesn't erase that that the only reason you're still alive is because of everybody else already meeting those needs. Like, I think that's what makes this, I think that's what makes this a really fruitful source of reflection and why I'm, why I'm really interested in it. Even Jeff Bezos is still a creature characterized by an almost endless well of need. Yeah. And, and even though he has been deceived or deceives himself into thinking that his existence is, is made by his own power it's just not true he exists and has what he has because of every other creature supplying his needs mm-hmm. um that is that is just how it works like it's not a and i find i it, it, i guess it is up for debate but like it it would be a really hard debate to have like did did jeff bezos do this himself did he you know did did he create everything from nothing for himself like right. no he didn't you know it all it all comes from exploited labor yes absolutely uh and from the life and energy of all the creatures and beings around him yeah you know yeah i he he very accidentally said said the truth when he was talking about uh, he was thanking people for his flight into the higher atmosphere uh, or he's like, you know, I want to thank all of the employees at Amazon, all the workers at Amazon, because you made this possible. And like, absolutely they did. Like (laughs) it is all of their labor and all of your profit off of their labor that made this possible. And uh, that's the problem. I, yeah, yeah. I, and that, that, um, it's the pulling yourself up by your bootstraps thing. You know, it's, it's the idea that, that, um, 
people deserve to be wealthy and above all the rest of us plebs. Um, yeah, yeah, that's all that all grows out of this idea that you can free yourself from need. I think that's all really true. Mm-hmm. Not to bring so everything back to my my socialist manifesto, but no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> I accept that. I think that's good. I th- I mean, this is why this is why so many um, like theologians, you know, from the nineteenth and twentieth century were secret socialists, mm-hmm. even though and they were or not so secret socialists. We just never learn about that piece, right? Like we never learn about the fact that like Karl Barth was a member of the Socialist Party of Germany, you know. Like we never learned that, you know, uh, or or even Tillich or you know all the different tradition of Christian socialism that so many people were in the United Kingdom in the nineteenth century, or I guess it wasn't the United Kingdom then, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like, like I'm not saying they're all saints and you know had nothing problematic about them, but like. These were these were realities that that people have been seeing for a long time. Yeah, we are not the first one to notice these resonances. Right, right. Yeah. And so yeah, there you go. That's that's Schleiermacher. That's what I've been working on. That's what I've been thinking about. Boom. Yeah. That's that's all good stuff. This is this is a nice good theology throwback episode. I'm here for it. Hey, you. They don't Very have to good. be throwback, throwbacks. We can just do this for many shows, I guess. <laughs> we really could. We really could. I I like having. I like adding wrestling to our our repertoire. I think that's fine. But we definitely don't need to. It's not like we need to do wrestling all the time. I do it enough for my my own brain. So so it works out. Though one thing that I said, I'm gonna leave this as a as a seed for future episodes. I said to Ian last night, you know, I wonder like when Ethan's gonna realize that I the reason I was uh, asked to to well, the reason I was released before Christmas is uh, because I broke kayfabe, and that's <laughs> that's why they oh me. there you go that's a good one <laughs> that's a good one yeah use it in your day to day lives friends kayfabe. <laughs> <laughs> Adrea, Adrea wants you to know that she's currently got all of her uh, snow clothes on. So she's got a scarf and a hat and her snow boots on with her dress. I don't know why, but okay. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a Minnesota What the Hell is a Pastor. We are Spanx Reebok and the Dude, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomolf, performed by Joe Schomolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and remember friends, pastors are people too.